Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. is one that has perpetual relevance in Christian circles, but it also has perpetual relevance in every circle, because there's something about the nature of man that makes him to be rational, yet at the same time there is something about him that makes him to project that which he cannot prove. And so it doesn't really matter whether you're a Christian or whether you're a Hindu or whether you're a Buddhist or whether you're an atheist you still sometimes, somewhere, have to come to grips with that. But it seems that there is a special poignancy within the church over the matter of the relationship. I think it is not because we're the only people who have the problem, but because so much more rides on the problem for you and for me. Because, you see, when we come down to this, we're coming to a a matter that we believe has ultimate and eternal significance. And so we dare not come to this question lightly or casually. Our very, all of the rest of our beliefs add uh, a keenness to our concern at this point. The world certainly thinks that there is a problem in Christianity in relating faith and reason. All that you have to do is read the literature of any generation. From the standpoint of the secular, the non-Christian world, and you will find that this is one of the things that they will always say, that there is something inherently contradictory about the Christian faith that you cannot really let your mind be free to seek truth for itself and come out as a Christian. Sometimes the church tends to uh, move in that direction. There are a couple of famous quotations from Tertullian, who was one of the really great early Christian fathers, living at the end of the second century of the Christian era in the beginning of the third. He wrote, Unhappy Aristotle, who invented for these heretics dialectic, the art of building up and pulling down, an art so evasive in its propositions, so far-fetched in its conjectures, so harsh in its arguments, so productive of contentions, embarrassing even to itself, retracting everything and really treating nothing. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? away with all attempts to produce a model Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus. With our faith, we desire no further belief, for this is our polymery faith that there is nothing that we ought to believe besides. And sometimes there are those who have taken Paul's words in Corinthians and in Colossians where he speaks of the folly of wisdom or where he speaks about warning against being deceived by vain philosophy 
and say that there is something inherent within biblical Christianity that is antithetical to the rational. This is particularly meaningful to me because very early in my Christian life, I found myself struggling with this. I became a Christian in my early teens, and I came, lived in a background that was far from being evangelical. My own home church, when I became a Christian, I hardly knew a person within it who would witness to the new birth, and I did not know a single individual in my high school who gave witness to the new birth. I lived through four years of high school in which I looked for one intelligent person who believed what I had come to believe. And I can remember very well that apart from my father, I had difficulty locating him. And when I moved among Christian people, or let me say church-related people, I found that very few of them believed in the things that I had come to believe were essential to the Christian faith. That was the day when modernism was at its strongest. Harry Emerson Fosdick was the preacher of all preachers in the United States. He wrote a book entitled A Guide to Understanding the Bible, which Dr. Harold Kuhn helped me one day by renaming A Guide to Misunderstanding the Bible. It was a, it was a powerful volume. Its basic assumption was naturalistic. Its basic assumptions were relativistic. There was no place for miracle, there was no place for the supernatural, there was no place for the, the basic elements that to me were, were at the heart of the Christian faith. And if you dared to look anyone in the face in those days in Methodist circles and say, yes, I believe in the physical resurrection of Christ, that brought a certain scorn and a certain contempt. And if you would dare to say, I believe in the personal visible return, of the Savior, that instantly put you in a world of of anachronisms and obscurantisms that let everybody around you know that you were not with it, you were a part of a past that was long gone and rightfully gone. Now, uh, I was reading today some in Pascal, and he said, one of the marks of greatness of man is his dislike for being looked down upon that there is something within every man that causes him to want to be accepted by those that are his peers, and even more so by those that are his superiors. So I found within myself a desire to be intellectually acceptable, but I found that nobody who was intellectually acceptable in my circles believed in the basic contentions that I found in the Scripture. I'll never forget the day when I sat in the library over here and found for the first time a a neo-Orthodox theologian. I found a little book on the philosophy of religion by Emil Bruner. Emil Bruner was not an Orthodox theologian. He was a neo-Orthodox theologian, but he took the system of liberalism and modernism in which I had been indoctrinated and analytically took it apart and rationally refuted it. And it was the first time that I had ever seen reason used to support, really, in an intelligent way, the basic biblical thrust. And I sat there glued to my seat a Saturday afternoon when everybody else was out doing reasonable things. I sat there glued to my seat, absolutely entranced, 
the thought that there were some intellectual answers to some of the doubts with which I had lived over the years. The big battle of my life was not after I got to university. The big battle of my life was when I was in my teens, when I had to decide whether I would follow Christ or truth, because everybody was very clear that I couldn't follow both, because one was antithetical to the other. And so that day a glimmer of hope came to me. It was after that that a theologian who influenced David Siemens influenced Roger Cushy, influenced a number of us, appeared within Methodist circles when I was Methodist. He had been a thoroughgoing liberal who said that basically the gospel to him was socialism, and uh, he was shut up to the scripture over a three-year period working on a commentary that is a massive symbol of old-style modernism. And as Edwin Lewis worked with the scripture, something began to happen to him. And I remember hearing him say, and catch this, he looked at a group of us and said, boys, I can divide you on one question that will separate you right down the middle, but it will not only separate you, it will determine whether you have a gospel to preach or whether you don't. That question is, was Jesus Christ the son of Mary who became the son of God? Or was he the son of God who became the son of Mary? That day is a red-letter day in my life. I could take you to the place where I heard that statement because it again opened a window for me. And it was the next step, one, that there could be a rational answer to the critics of the Christian faith. Two, he posed very clearly that the key to it all is the fact that there is not one world for reason to explore, there are two worlds to to which reason must react. And one is the world which is beyond the reach of human reason, and that's why Jesus Christ came to us. But you see, I've been indoctrinated in a religious system in which Jesus was the son of Mary, who was so good that God adopted him and made him his own son, And in that way, all of us could all become sons of God. There was no metaphysical transformation. There didn't even need to be a moral transformation. There certainly was no ontological difference between these worlds, you see. But here was this concept of a world beyond that brought this one under judgment. I remember then I found myself later at Princeton, sitting under a man who had had who had two PhDs, he was a philosopher, his name was Emil Cahier, I've mentioned him to you before. I enjoyed him a great deal, we uh, loved him, he had a dog, his name was Cahier, we called his dog Yippee-Yay-Yo, I'll let the intelligent among you understand why. But he was one of the world's authorities on the French philosopher, mathematician, theologian, uh, physicist, Blaise Pascal, and I remember one of the assignments that he gave us was to read a treatise called An Introduction to the Principles of Geometry, and I remember what a surprise that was to me. I thought, well, that's one I will read to get out of the way, and I started reading it and found myself, it again was like that day that I heard Edwin Lewis say. Whether you have a gospel hangs on, whether you believe that Jesus was the son of Mary who became the son of God or he was the son of God who became the son of Mary. 
Because Pascal said, geometry was his mistress. He loved it more than any other discipline. It was so neat. It was so tidy. You could prove things so well. You could put QED at the end and know that you had completed your assignment. You had the answer, and it was it was proven. Then he said, and Pascal had been an agnostic. He had been a free thinker. But he said, one day, he said, the very reason that he said he couldn't accept Christianity became the reason he decided he must accept Christianity. He had rejected Christianity because Christianity demands a step of faith. And he said he was a rationalist, he was an intellectual, he would start with what he could prove. But geometry was his favorite discipline. And then one day, it dawned on him that the first thing you do the first day in geometry is to get your definition, and those are not debatable. A circle is determined not by the person studying geometry. The nature of a rectangle is not determined by the student. You accept some definitions, you accept some axioms, and some postulates. And he said, having accepted some axioms that a part is not as great as the whole, and the whole is greater than any of its parts, or the shortest line between two points, you know, this kind of thing, having accepted these, then you can go ahead and find the conclusions that geometry affords. And he said, you know, could it be that that's the way ultimately with all truth? that it begins with some uh, self-evident truths that you accept and move to other things. So I read Pascal and found great profit in him for myself. I, when I became president of Asbury College, I had been in school as a student for 23 years. I was 46 years of age, which meant that for 23 years I sat in class and recited like a first grader, really, all those years, I blushed, and still blush sometimes at how long. I spent three, four, five, eight years in graduate school, passed an A.B. degree, and then uh, more than eight years, eight years and an extra term, and then spent four years after that working on a dissertation. And lest you think I'm uh, totally stupid, let me say this. Uh... Most of that was never to get a degree. Most of that was very selfishly motivated. Most of that was because I had haunting questions in my mind for which, for which I wanted answers. Because God's put something in your head that you cannot live in repudiation of. Sooner or later, you have to reconcile what you believe with what you know. And so much of that was simply to answer some of my own personal questions. But then I found myself sitting under a professor who's one of the world's experts, one of the top three sumerologists in the world. And we were studying the Sumerian creation story and the Babylonian creation story and an Egyptian creation story or two. And then he said, perhaps we should look at the Hebrew story or but, of course, you know, it's borrowed from these others, and it's an adaptation of these. 
And so then we did begin to look at it. I remember I began to look at the differences. And I remember when I began to raise some of the differences with him, Dr. Samuel Noah Kramer of the University of Pennsylvania. He became very uneasy with me. He was very happy to talk about all the similarities, but very unwilling to discuss the differences. And there are vast differences. The major difference is that in the Sumerian creation story and in the Babylonian creation story, and in the Assyrian creation story, in these ancient Near Eastern creation stories, there is no non or transnatural element to be found. Whether it's uh, Greek and you've got Jupiter or Zeus, or whether it's uh, Isis and Horus or Osiris and Egyptian, or whether it's Anu, in uh, the Babylonian, or whether it is uh, Tiamat, or Marduk, or you can keep on going with all the gods. The thing that I discovered was that in every one of those creation stories, the gods who were supposed to have started things themselves needed a beginning. And they were natural forces. I'll never forget when I first learned that the great Greek original, the early Greek gods, had names like Kronos, which is time. But time is an aspect of the created order. Uranus, the heavens. Or Gaia, the earth. You can keep on going or the sea, the gods that the others worshipped were all natural forces. And I said, but Dr. Crane, this begins by saying that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, made Uranus and Gaia. Could it be that the Hebrews really worshipped the one who made what everybody else worshipped? And could it be that the differences are due to the fact that Genesis points to a world beyond any world that the other religions of the world know? He was very uncomfortable. And he said, oh, I never forget uh, having a little interchange with Joseph Fletcher of situational ethics saying, and he said, well, Dennis, didn't the Hebrews get their concept of monotheism from Egypt, from Ignatan, who worshipped the one God, the sun God? I said, yes. But tell me, there are a lot of people who think that. But what was the one God that Ignatan worshipped? It was the sun. And you see, Moses said he worshipped the one that made the sun. So you see, we, we don't blush when we talk about a two-story universe and that the key to this story down here is found in this story. Now that's using spatial terminology and spatial analogies, and you know enough to know that spatial analogies 
All analogies are limited, and we're imposing on a non-spatial reality a spatial analogy. But let me remind you that the only way that creatures of space and time can talk about a non-spatial, non-temporal world is in spatial and temporal categories, because that's the only world we know. But you see, those can be used in such a way that we can point to what's beyond. Now, uh, when that began to come home to me, I began to feel very comfortable with some basic things that had troubled me through the years. If there is a creator who spoke the universe into existence, do you think miracles are really any great problem for him? But you see, the the world of which I was a part was a world that had ruled out that transnatural, supernatural world. You let me use that language, but even that is limited. I will never forget when I read Paul Tillich, who was sort of a major figure in my day at one at one period in my time, and he had a book on the resurrection and. I read him and read him and read him, and as I read him, I felt there was something violently anti-biblical in it. And as I read the Old Testament, I felt that I was dealing with a pre-Abrahamic mentality. But you see, what I was being told in my day was that he was in the forefront of modern thought. And then one day, I found an article in Religion and Life which is the Methodist Theological Publication, by Nels F. S. Foray on the element of transcendence in Paul Tillich's thought. And he denied that there was any. And he illustrated it this way. He said he had a student who came to him. He said, Dr. Foray, I have a parishioner who died. He's a very important man in my parish. And he said, I must, uh, I have his funeral. I've never had a funeral before and I'm scared to death. What do I say? Everybody will be there. Well, he said, talk about the resurrection. Well, he said, do you have any suggestions for me? Yes, he said, get Paul Tillich's book on the resurrection and read it. And the student said, but Dr. Frey, don't send me to Paul Tillich. Don't send me to Paul Tillich. He said, uh, uh, because he didn't, be- he doesn't believe in the resurrection. Now, Frey was a personal friend of Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich had asked Nels Foray to write the volume in Contemporary Modern Theologians on Paul Tillich. And he said, what do you mean he doesn't believe in the resurrection? He wrote a book on it. And the boy said, sir, I sat in his classes for two solid years, and in class we discussed by resurrection. He doesn't believe is anything after death. When a man dies to Paul Tillich, it's over with because nature is Lord of all. It was published in Religion and Life. Now you see, if you have a one world concept in which nature is supreme and is the last word, you are going to have trouble with uh, the New Testament. You won't have trouble just with Jesus walking on the water are multiplying five loaves and two fish, are raising Lazarus from the dead, you're going to have trouble with the virgin birth, not because of the way he was born, but because of who it was that was being born. 
Because from the naturalist point of view, there's nobody out there to come and to breach our natural laws and be born God-man, God among us. Now, uh, that uh, gives you a bit of my theological intellectual odyssey. But once you know that he's there, and that we are not he, and he is not us, and there's an infinite chasm between the creator and the creature, then you say, ah, and he made it all? Then what does that tell me about my reasoning? It tells me that it's very valid and that it's a gift from him. And if God created all things, then there is a harmony among them. And they are all related, and there's not only a unity in the universe. You know what the word cosmos comes from? It comes from the Greek word order. And you see, we, we believe that there is an order there, because when he spoke it into existence, he gave it an order. And all things relate. And he's given to us reasons, he's given to us minds that can grasp that order and see the relationship. And he commanded us in Genesis, rule over it, be master over it, which means we're supposed to understand. And the atomic scientists studying nuclear fission or the astronomer studying the remote galaxies uh, or the chemist who's working for an answer to uh, cancer and is dealing with the, the microcosmic nature of the, of the human cell and trying to find what's deep within that cell, that little world. This is the work of God and the use of human reason for the glory of God just as much as the man who prepares a sermon, preaches it, and spends some time in prayer before he does, and has some other people spend some time in prayer when he gets through. Because, you see, God has made us. He's given us minds to be a master of this. Now, sometimes the Christians are a little critical of, of reason. Let me read you something from A.T.N. Gilles' song. We have all met, either in history or indeed round about us, Christians who believe they're rendering homage to God by affecting in regard to science, philosophy, and art, an indifference which sometimes approaches contempt. I've seen Christians who had contempt for higher learning. When I went to Brandeis, I hardly had a friend who thought I was doing what I ought to do. And one of the persons closest to me said, while the world's dying and going to hell, you go study ancient Egyptian, justify that for me. But this contempt may express either supreme greatness or supreme littleness. I like to be told that all philosophy is not worth an hour of trouble. I hope Mike and Jim and Clarence Hunter are here to hear that. I like to be told that all philosophy is not worth an hour of trouble when he who tells me so is called Pascal. That is to say, a man who is at once one of the greatest philosophers, one of the greatest scientists, and one of the greatest artists of all time. A person always has a right to disdain what he surpasses. If you're the best philosopher of the day, perhaps you can speak a little critically of philosophy. 
especially if what he disdains is not so much the thing loved as the excessive attachment which enslaves us to it. Pascal despised neither science nor philosophy, but he never pardoned them for having once hidden from him the most profound mystery of all. And you see, there's the problem. The very instrument that God has given us to be the means of helping us to understand his creation and understand his ways and to understand his words can become an end in itself. And man without God again and again will make his intellect an end in itself. And when he does, he's made a means an end and he's guilty of idolatry and the light goes out, the darkness settles in, and confusion and disintegration resolve. Gilson goes on to say that the proper attitude of the intellect is one of bowing prostrate before the one who made it and giving itself to his glory and to his service. And I remember a chapter in Edwin Lewis's, one of Edwin Lewis's volumes entitled the supreme acquiescence. And he tells about the day when he intellectually bent the knee to accept two great realities, the virgin birth and the resurrection. And of course what he was accepting was not the virgin birth and the resurrection, but a view of the nature of reality that now included a creator God who had made a universe and made it well. And the universe was not God, and God was not the universe. Let me read for you, before I close, a few lines from Pascal. You didn't think it's so few, but they're good enough. You be patient with me for a minute. It's more important than anything I've got to say in the question and answer period. Listen. I can well conceive a man without hands, without feet, without a head, for it is only experience that teaches us that the head is more necessary than the feet. The child doesn't know it. But I cannot conceive man without thought. He would be a stone or a brute. Thought constitutes the greatness of man. Man is but a reed, the most feeble thing in nature but he is a thinking reed. The entire universe need not arm itself to crush him. A vapor, a drop of water, suffices to kill a man. Weak. But if the universe were to crush him, man would still be more noble than that which killed him because he knows that he dies and the advantage which the universe has over him. The universe knows nothing of this. All our dignity consists then in thought. By it we must elevate ourselves and not by space and time which we cannot fill. Let us endeavor then to think well. This is the principle of morality. It is not from space that I must seek my dignity, but from the government of my thought. 
I shall have no more if I possess worlds. By space, the universe encompasses and swallows me up like an atom. By thought, I comprehend the world. Thought. All the dignity of man consists in it. Thought is therefore by its nature a wonderful and incomparable thing. It must have strange defects to be contemptible. But it has such, so that nothing sometimes is more ridiculous. How great it is in its nature, how vile it is in its defects. But what is this thought? How foolish it is. There, of course, you get a, something's basically biblical as well as Pascalian. The greatness of human thought. But how ridiculous it is when it's used for unworthy ends and is not in obedience, brought into obedience to Christ. Listen to this final one. The greatness of man is so evident that it is even proved by his wretchedness. For what in animals is nature we call in man wretchedness, by which we recognize that his nature being now like that of animals, he has fallen from a better nature which was once his. For who is unhappy at not being a king except a deposed king? Get that? Who is unhappy at not being a king except a deposed king? You see his view of the nobility of man? Was Pallas Emilius unhappy at being no longer consul? On the contrary, everybody thought him happy in having been consul because the office could only be held for a time. But men thought Perseus so unhappy in being no longer king because the condition of kingship implied his being always king, that they thought it strange that he endured life. Who is unhappy at having only one mouth, and who is not unhappy at having only one eye? Probably no man ever ventured to mourn at not having three eyes. But anyone is inconsolable at having none. Notwithstanding the sight of all our miseries which press upon us and take us by the throat, we have an instinct which we cannot repress and which lifts us up. There is internal war in man between reason and the passions. If he had only reason without passion, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Or if he had only passion without reason. But having both, he cannot be without strife, being unable to be at peace with the one without being at war with the other. Thus he is always divided against and opposed to himself. And so self-interest fights the rational and the rational the self-interest until because of our fallen natures, 
the self-interest controls the reason when we are not cleansed by Christ. And then that which makes us noble becomes the instrument of rationalizing our degradation. So let me uh, make three thoughts in closing. Reason, the gift of God. You have it. You have to use it. It has limitations. Those limitations are due to the fact it is created. We're not God. But it's also due to the fact we're fallen. And so our reason is oftentimes used to justify and to rationalize instead of to seek truth. That's the reason the cleansing of the human heart. That's the reason the holiness message is so crucial to me. The cleansing of the human heart is so important. It frees the intellect to seek truth without self-interest, apart from self-interest. The validity of human reason, the limitations that are on it, but the compatibility of reason with faith and faith with reason, with this and through. I'm convinced that faith is what leads you to knowledge. And reason is a key part of that. I had to drive some today, and I was listening to the Gospel of Mark. I have a New Testament on tape. And I listened to about 13 chapters of the Gospel of Mark today. What fun. Uh, It reminded me of some things. Jesus came along and began to feed data into Peter's mind data. And Peter and everybody else said, who is this? They raised rational questions. He's an awfully good man. He's an awfully wise man. He helps people. He's loving. He has answers that we never found in anybody else. And he has powers that nobody else ever had. He cleansed that leper. He healed my mother-in-law. He delivered a demoniac. He even raised a man from the dead. Could it be? Then one day Jesus looked at him and said, Who do you think I am? And he said, I believe you're the Christ. That isn't separated from intellectual data. That's in the end of chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark. And in the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus took Peter up on top of a mountain. And when Peter caught his breath, there stood Moses and Elijah. Wouldn't you love to have a movie, color movie of Peter at that time? Moses and Elijah. And they were paying tribute to Jesus. And what was faith in the end of chapter 8 of Mark? was knowledge when Peter came down from that mountain. And so faith is the thing that leads us into knowledge. And reason is a prime means. Beautiful, the unity, the way it works together. So it depends on 
to whom it is submitted. If it is submitted to God, it will be a means of knowledge and of grace. If it is under the control of myself, it will mislead me always and be the means of my degradation. Instead of bringing me to truth, it will bring me. I will use it for rationalizing and for self-justification.